Hi, I'm Ross Emery and you're listening to the Cinematography Podcast. The following podcast contains explicit language. You're listening to the Cinematography Podcast presented by Hot Rod Cameras, a program about the art, craft and philosophy of the moving image and the people who make it happen. Coming to you from the world headquarters of Hot Rod Cameras in Hollywood, California, are your hosts, Ben Rock and Ilya Friedman. Hey, Ilya, how's it going? Hey, Ben, it's going. How's it going with you? It feels like it's been a week since we did this. And what a week it's been. Yes, it has been quite a week, let me tell you. Yeah, it's been a little crazy. I think that the fact that this uh, giant presidential election is happening, uh, you know, tomorrow, we're recording this uh, Monday night. So uh, those of you who are listening to this, which drops on Wednesday, will have the benefit of knowing what kind of chaos the world was thrown into by the American election on Tuesday. But for Ilya and I, we're just hanging on the razor's edge. Just, just just, peering into the abyss, just saying, hi, abyss, how's it going? Let's talk about cinematography when, of course, like, you know, uh, the next four years of our lives and perhaps the rest of our lives are kind of at going to swing radically one way or another, depending on the outcome of this election. It's true. Zero precincts are currently reporting uh, wh- what the, the lead is right now. So it is a complete cat in a box. We have no idea if it's alive, if it's dead, if it's going one way or another. We, we, we don't know. It's going to be it's a surprise to everyone. And uh, not to make it all about me, but exactly four years ago, I was working with our friend Zubi Mohammed on an industrial video. Right now, I'm working with another person I knew from back in the day in Orlando, a, a gentleman named Mike Marshall on an industrial video, which we were doing. We were actually shooting it on election day four years ago this time i'm just editing so i'm editing that enables me to completely obsess about what's going on in the world the whole day uh good times so anyway i don't want to sound distracted or uncommitted to the cinematography podcast as it's one of my favorite things to do on earth but uh tomorrow is going to be a momentous day and we're here to talk about cool cinematography and again those of you listening to it you already know how yesterday went i don't know how how it's gonna go that's right that's right Uh, Well, you know, some sad news from uh, earlier this week. Uh, Sean Connery passed away at the age of 90. Sir Sean Connery. Sir Sean Connery. That's right. He was knighted. Uh, You know, uh, famous for for many roles, including Indiana Jones' father in The Last Crusade. Uh, James Bond. Maybe he might have played James Bond in the first several James Bond movies. Maybe he played James Bond. You know, I figured figured I was going to build my way up to it. I was going to mention the the old guy in Entrapment. I just would have gone chronologically. Well, he was in The Man Who Would Be King. That's right. You know, people forget that he was a serious actor. And then also he's in like a weird... (laughs) The Rock. uh, He's in a, a weird red diaper in a movie called Zardos that if you haven't seen... Definitely one of the most crazy pants movies of the English speaking world ever made post-apocalyptic. I don't even know what you call Zardoz. It's like an oddball fantasy. Have you seen it? Have you seen this crazy movie? Oh, I will tell you. I stocked it many times when I was in high school in the 99 section. But did you watch it? At the video store I worked at. It was very famous with uh, Sean Connery and those fuzzy britches there on the on the cover. So weird. Yeah, no, I mean, Sean Connery is just kind of a one-of-a-kind actor. I, I, I think that probably my unironic favorite performance of his is probably in The Untouchables. I thought he was just really brilliant in that, and he kind of reinvented his career. One, one of the best and most fun-to-imitate accents in film history. And uh, when they were first deciding to make a James Bond movie, I'm sure it couldn't have been easy to cast him. I heard that it was actually up to him 
and Roger Moore, hmm. and they went with Connery back in the day because Roger Moore was too pretty. So they waited till he was gristled and old, and then he came in after Connery. Well, wasn't that old? But uh, uh, you know, uh, I, I bumped into Sean Connery once. I didn't. Uh, Did I you? didn't. I, I wasn't that guy. I, I you know I was very respectful, but I literally almost ran into him. He was coming through a door, and I was on my way out, and uh, I was stunned for a moment when I realized who it was. And how freaking tall he is. He is actually, really? he, yeah, he was at least 6'2", six, 6'3", six, and uh, big guy. Really, really big guy. I was like, I was, you know, assuming if he was wearing flat shoes. That's actually surprising because I, uh, people who uh, who aren't in Hollywood probably don't realize that most movie stars are really short. They're short people with giant heads. That's true. Uh, Sean Connery's head seemed uh, large, but it didn't seem uh, comically large by the way that so many uh, short people with huge heads in Hollywood seem to do really well. So I have a friend who calls them lollipops. Yes, lollipops. I've, I've heard that term before, too. So yeah. so anyway, s- sad news. Uh, Sean Connery's passing. Uh, would be, be yeah, Sorry to see him go. He always had a certain gravitas that he brought to every role and uh, he'll be missed. And he had retired some time ago. I mean, I think he did some voice work here and there, but uh, his last real movie was The League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, oh. which I believe was in like. 2002 or something so it's been damn near 20 years since he's made a movie if you have to go watch an old sean connery film i'm gonna advise people to skip that one maybe try hunt for red october something like that hunt for red october i mean if you must see him on a submarine yes definitely hunt for red october (laughs) man i need i need me some sean connery on a submarine and in in, uh, the hunt for red october he plays a russian submarine captain with a scottish accent. that's right that's one of the things i always appreciated (laughs) about him is whatever he played wherever they were from that's right Scottish accent, big time. <laughs> and of course, Highlander. An Egyptian with a Scottish accent, a Russian with a Scottish <laughs> accent. Yeah. Yep. I remember the Philip Kaufman movie, Rising Sun, which is kind of like obsessed with Japanese culture. And he's this Scottish guy who's obsessed with Japanese culture. And uh, and I just remember him being like, yes, Kohai. <laughs> yes, the, the gravitas of, of Sean Connery. I loved him in Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade. I heard that they had offered him, Spielberg had offered him uh, a role in Indiana Jones 4. And how fucking baller is this that Connery said, no thanks. No no thanks to being in an Indiana Jones movie directed by Steven Spielberg. Even if it was, I'd say, objectively the worst one ever made. Objectively. Still, you know, Steven Spielberg calls, anyone says yes. And Sean Connery is like, nope, I think I'm going to just go play golf and be rich and old. <laughs> I mean, good for him. <laughs> you know, it's good to have the the means and the wherewithal to decide that you've had enough of the, the daily grind and you're ready to, uh, you know, to hang up that uh, that particular. Yeah. That particular play golf and be rich. Yeah. Absolutely. So, Ilya, who is on the show today? On the show today is cinematographer Ross Emery. He is amazing. I have to say, probably the the thing that I was most excited to talk to Ross about was The Matrix, because he shot bullet time. He, I mean, like, when you think about that movie, you probably think there's like a 9 out of 10 chance that you're thinking about a shot he made as second unit DP on that movie. And he worked... Uh, with Alex Proyas on uh, Dark City. And he, I mean, he just has an amazing career and has done some beautifully visual stuff. And now he is shooting uh, Raised by Wolves on HBO Max, uh, which is a beautiful show. Uh, some episodes written by Ridley Scott, all episodes executive produced by Ridley Scott. So he's he's somebody who like, when you're the Wachowskis or you're Ridley Scott, you, you need it done right. By golly, Ross Emery. Ross Emery's your guy. All right. Well, let's get to the interview. 
The Cinematography Podcast Interview. We are here via Zoom with Ross Emery. Ross, you're in Australia, correct? That's right, Sydney. Sydney, awesome. We, we've done so many interviews from Australia, and there are just so many amazing uh, DPs in Australia who we don't have access to in the States. So one of the silver linings of COVID is that since we decided to go to Zoom, we've been able to get people like you on the show. Thank you so much for doing it. I have so many questions. You, ha- you have an amazing career. Before I even r- really get going, I kind of want to ask the stock question that I ask everyone, because I love the visual style that, that you create. And I'm curious, when you're handed a script, when you're reading a script, what is it that you see as you're reading the script? Uh, well, um, visualizing scripts is actually one of the more interesting bits of the job, actually. It's like, it's kind of like, you kind of usually sort of get yourself into a nice sort of quiet area like that. And I think most DPs are kind of pretty much the same in terms of, you know, they're kind of like overly visual people. And that transference from like words on a page to images kind of, to me, anyway, it kind of comes naturally. Some of them are pretty heavily referenced. Some of them, if a script kind of echoes a certain film that you've seen or or echoes a certain style that you've seen. And sometimes, depending on, you know, the sort of the, the nature of the writing and things, it can kind of start evoking, uh, you know, various kind of moods and tones and things like that. Mm. And the scripts themselves kind of can be sort of unique things where some writers will be um, uh, overly describe scenes and things like that, and some of them will kind of literally kind of almost virtually write the dialogue and leave all the screen direction to kind of... the to a later part of the process. The triggering of the images kind of comes sort of pretty quickly usually in the first couple of pages and you'll start sort of really seeing images. It's actually one of one of those things that um, is interesting. I, I always like to read paper scripts because I will usually have a pencil in my other hand and, and on the blank side of the paper, paper you basically just start scribbling and it's whether it's a note or whether it's a, you know, a really super rough storyboard frame or it's a shape or something like that. And that's kind of, you know, the origin of everything you're going to do with the film if you end up sort of going that way. And usually I try and keep that first paper script kind of with me on my desk in an office or, or as I'm doing pre-production because sometimes when you sort of get into the, into the trenches on a film, you kind of sometimes kind of have to sort of like really sort of stop and put your head up and kind of remember sort of what the origin, what your first impressions were because... The majority of the time, they're usually the best ones. I always find that kind of the ones, the things you think of first, that are sometimes just the most sort of appropriate kind of images. Mm-hmm. And you bring up something that I'm always trying to dig for with people is like how when you're making a film and you've made some films that are, you know, relatively complex, how do you know where you are in the story? Like how, what kind of note taking or uh, what method do you use to know where you are in the arc? You know, if you've come up with color schemes or lens selections, lens choices that happen at one point and not another, like how do you keep all that straight? Is there a method, a technique that you use? Uh, yeah, I, listen, I can't. I really try and keep it simple. I can't keep it sort of like a really super straight line that kind of is the thread that kind of goes through the whole film because I, mm. I, I feel like the continuity of the visuals is really important in a movie. I mean, it, there's quite often there are some movies that sort of like jump around in the visuals and stuff like that, and maybe the story sort of requires that. But I kind of like to kind of keep uh, something that's a constant, and whether it's a color or whether it's a lens choice or whether it's a camera movement choice. And that's kind of your stock for that film. And it'll be something that you kind of just, you kind of, it's your touchstone. You keep coming back to it. In a couple of films, I've basically had a colour or, or two colours that you literally sort of just start building from. It gives you a place to start from each time. 
And mm. what you find is by the end of the film, when you when you're getting into those dog days in the you know week sort of sixteen, seventeen, and you know a lot of the crew is kind of you know you've been doing it for that a while, and sometimes you kind of can forget while you're there, and you kind of have to sort of just always have this sort of touchstone you can come back to and kind of just really ground yourself and, and keep yourself on track. Uh, it is a difficult thing to do and certainly earlier in my career where you kind of wanted to smash things all over the wall and, and do as many different things as you could in the one scene and the one or the one film it's kind of like uh, you, as you go on you kind of understand that sort of the, the continuity of the image is important to the story and it's important for the characters to have that to play off. So I'm going to I'm going to jump way forward and then we're going to go back into your career. But I want to talk uh, before we even really get going about Raised by Wolves, which is just an amazing sci fi series. It's on HBO Max. And uh, if anyone has HBO Max, it's definitely worth watching. It's uh, had me engaged from the very beginning. And uh, can you I mean, it's it's a Ridley Scott thing, which we all know because the androids bleed something that looks like milk. (laughs) So it's very important to know that. Just tell me how how you came to this project, because, I mean, you've done you've done some amazing work. But like this is just uh, for television. I feel like this is like a a leap beyond what I've seen sci fi wise. Yeah. Listen, the project itself is kind of amazing. And and it's like it. I mean, obviously, any any script or any project that comes sort of through the door with Ridley Scott's name on it, you've kind of really got to sort of pay attention to. I came to the project in a, this in a quite interesting way, and I think it's kind of like the completion of a number of circles. Darius Wolski, who shoots all the Ridley stuff now, is I did some work with him a long time ago, and uh, I operated for him on a film called Dark City which is kind of the film that a lot of people like. And I also operated I, I for him. I love this movie so much, I can't yeah. tell you. <laughs> well, I, I, also, I also operated for him on uh, The Island of Dr. Moreau because he was the original DP on The Island of Dr. Moreau. But, oh, wait, for Richard Stanley? Yeah. yeah. Or not Richard yeah. Stanley, sorry. The one that was originally yeah, ri- Richard yeah. Stanley's. Richard Stanley. Oh, Darius was going to shoot the film, but Richard obviously had creative differences, let's say. Yeah. <laughs> and when he left, Darius left with him. So, But I'd known Darius for a very, very long time and we kept in touch. And when Raised by Wolves came along, the production side had put me forward. And then the other side, which was Darius and Ridley, they knew me straight away. And I'd also done a bit of work for them on the Alien Covenant film, mm-hmm. which was in Sydney. I shot some stuff with, uh, with Luke, Ridley's son, on that. So... It kind of like a, a real stars aligning kind of thing to get me to that project, and I'm so glad it did because it was such a kind of interesting project as a DP. You kind of got to sort of go back to square one and reinvent a world, which is what Ridley's all about. It's reinventing worlds, and and so we got to write the laws for this world, and uh, we got to kind of play in that sandbox, and it uh, it was something which uh, it, it is the sort of thing. It's like how many times in your career do you kind of get the chance to kind of do things like this, which is in a way kind of just reinventing everything you, you've done because the way that they approached the series and the, and the storytelling and the design of the show was really unique. And for those who've seen the show, it's like the first sort of couple of episodes, you could almost be thinking that you're watching like a National Geographic documentary about some kind of Amazon tribe that hadn't had any contact with the world. Yeah. But you were, in fact, kind of, you know, watching androids on a different planet. It's an interesting sort of strange sort of example, but we did really approach the first sort of third of the series in 
in the way that you would approach like an ethnographic documentary, which is a strange way of, of looking at a sci-fi show, but what it does is kind of grounds the audience into kind of there's a reality there. And when you have the, the sort of the storylines and the concepts, which are so preposterous in terms of the androids and, and everything else that goes on, but then you're watching it through this kind of prism of, a, of almost a documentary kind of style, uh, it, it, it actually kind of really does work and it means that you, you know, your preposterous scenarios can bed themselves into the audience's mind. That's an interesting way to describe it because I feel like it feels so realistic, like the world that they're on, the planet that they're on feels like a place that you could just go to. I have no idea how digitally altered it is or how much effects are in that or if it was just that's the way the location looked because it's shot in a way that doesn't really draw attention to a lot of the effects and then when the big moments happen it's never slow or boring but you're not like expecting it to go super sci-fi the way it does it's, it's what's brilliant about it but it really does feel like you're in some you know horrible desert landscape so let me ask you how much of that desert landscape did you guys change or did you just find a location that was mostly what you you know you, and it was set dressed but you know like were you right by a highway or was it just like out in the middle of nowhere which is what it looks like it was about an hour and a half out of Cape Town. A lot of it is real. The, the location itself was kind of like part of a, a, a sort of a farm or like a ranch that was there. And it's backed up to that amazing escarpment, which kind of we played as a backdrop for a lot of the scenes in that location. Um, the other side of it, yes, we added some mountains and a volcano and the occasional spaceship, and we sort of scraped the ground. So it literally sort of had this very sort of harsh kind of look and dusty, harsh look. And uh, the production designer found some pretty alien-looking African trees that, that you see, like, you know, boab trees and things like that, that they use for some of the set dressing. And we actually made some of their own alien-looking trees as well. And uh, because it's just that you've got to knock it all the time. It's like, you know, whether we were 100% successful or not, but if you can achieve in the production design a level of uniqueness that means you virtually don't recognize anything it does yeah. kind of put you into that place it's like you know when you sort of see cheaper sci-fi that you know suddenly they're walking around and you know you see a nike symbol on the bottom of someone's sneaker or something like that it kind of takes you out of the story a bit so the intention is also to always to kind of try and achieve this sort of otherworldliness it's like Ridley actually had the saying of like it's it's too much our world if he saw anything uh, that was kind of like a little bit you couldn't see, well, you know, if you're in the supermarket, if you're in Ralph's and you're walking down the aisles, you might see something that looks like that. You know, okay, it'll take that off the set or change it or paint it or wrap some stuff around it or whatever it is and just kind of try mm. and really work that, that, um, that world out. Well, and I'm actually interested that you were saying that a lot of that was built because I was in my mind, I was kind of assuming that there had been because there is a lot of digital uh, you know, effects and stuff in it. And I kind of wanted to ask, I mean, especially with your background, you've done a lot of stuff that, that involves visual effects going back to when visual effects were not nearly as advanced as they are now. But like, what's the footprint on your shoot of the VFX team when you're when you're doing some of that stuff? Um, pretty light, really. We had, we, I mean, always the first couple of weeks, you're kind of figuring out where the edges are, uh, how far you can push things, and, and what you can kind of go to, and what is going to be possible and what's not. I mean, we all work within sort of particular schedules and budgets and things like that, and you're trying to sort of like squeeze out every sort of ounce of magic out of those particular budgets and schedules. I've always, and yes, if you look at my my sort of IMDb page, it's like going back a long way. It's always been visual effects, kind of going back to the yeah. dark cities and things like that. And I've always actually tried to really 
get close to the visual effects supervisors in the department because I think they, they're the elevators. They're basically, they take what you shoot and pretty much 99.9% .9 of the time they make it better. And so you've got to really get on board with them. And I really like to try and help them out as much as I can with certain things, which is not just, you know, dropping them in the in the mud and letting them try and figure it out, but kind of try and assist yeah. them because there's times on the shoot where you'll need them to help you out. And if you can have this real sort of cooperation between your visual effects and yourself, they, you can really, you know, you can really make a, a much more successful movie and, and have the visuals kind of really have a coherence and sing you know you get on board with them and it's like I really like to, to do that it's um, it's one of the things I've always done and I think it's really paid off for me over the years so last week we talked to uh, we talked to two different DPS from Ozark and I kind of have a similar question for you that I had for them because Ozark is like a noir film that takes place so much in bright direct sunlight in the case of Ozark they make bright sunlight look dark in your show everything is constantly in bright light like everything is in the sun almost being blasted it's almost too bright in, in certain moments talk about like creating something that I feel like a lot of times you know sci-fi or you know things like uh, things that you've worked on the Matrix Dark City stuff like that those go very very dark uh what powered the choice to make this show as bright as it is i think a lot of it was kind of like really sort of trying to sort of put into sharp relief what a hostile world they'd arrived on i think the, the real sort of like the the imperative to kind of try and find some of the harshest landscapes we could find for to set the story in, uh, which is essentially just like a, a backdrop or a setting to kind of kind of put into relief the conflict between the two groups of people in the show no it has it has such an individual look like i i mean probably the only other things i could compare it to really would be other ridley scott things like parts of prometheus um i'm always interested on a tv series where uh where we have multiple dps working on it how do you keep it creative and alive for yourself while kind of adhering to the established look of the show that's been workshopped and has to be carried across by multiple people let me start by just saying how, as a cinematographer, and I'm sure everybody would kind of know this and appreciate this, of essentially being handed the follow-up stories to the shows that Ridley Scott's done. You know, i got to say, the kind of internal nervousness and pressure that you find that's sort of, okay, fine, this guy's just done this, and now I've got to follow right on his footsteps and make it look just as good as he <laughs> and Darius Wolski and have the same time. And, and I gotta tell you, I sweated that. And it was like, that was that was a sweat. I could have gone in and kind of just sort of done what you do and, and gone, yeah. you know, painted by numbers and all that sort of stuff. But Ridley stuff has this kind of, it has a multi-layered approach to it and, and things and shots that you think are quite simple and straightforward actually have a lot of visual subtext in them. So going through that, going into that world, it's like, I wasn't too bad because again, I've done a lot of second units and on, on bigger films and it kind of was a similar, in the initial stages, it's a similar approach of kind of like, okay, this is what main unit's done, now you've got to match it. And yeah. we did, and we started off that way, but we then found that as the storyline progressed, it starts adding an awful lot of subplot and different contexts and layers and flashbacks and things that, that kind of drew us away from the, the original ideas that Ridley had or the original technique that Ridley had that quite legitimately kind of sort of brought you along and it's just the story kind of taking you along. And Ridley was terrific because one of the blocks I did, Luke Scott, Ridley's son, directed, who's a fantastic director in his own right, 
And so we kind of had the direct line to Ridley if we had questions or we had to get answers on some kind of concept that was going. And that's normally what happens in terms of, you know, what's the intent? What's the intent of this scene? I can read the I can read the words on the page, but I need to know what the intent is. So we could get in touch with Ridley, and Ridley could, would kind of talk us through it. And and once you have, and this is the other thing, once you have that intent. Once you have the intent of what the showrunner or the scriptwriter or the director, in fact, kind of uh, needs, uh, once you know what the intent is, the rest of the process becomes a lot simpler it, it, because it's like it becomes, oh, okay, I get it. We just need to transfer this idea. And this idea transference is actually really important in cinematography because that's what you're doing. You're not, you're not making pictures. You're transferring ideas. And that you have to do it visually and you know a scriptwriter does it verbally but the cinematographer has to do it visually and if you're not transferring the ideas it's you know part of your a big part of your job is probably not being achieved because you can do wonderful pictures and you can do fantastic sort of looking shots and things like that but it's not, if it's not transferring the idea that's uh, that's not really effective so knowing that intent of what's going on that's kind of the most important thing. And that's kind of what I've always sort of gone to in, in terms of that, that sort of world. Once you have the intent, you, you're good. You can figure it out. It's not, it's not too difficult once you know that. Let's go back to your origin story a little bit. Like, when did you first get the idea in your head that uh, cinematography was a career that you could pursue? Kind of strange, because it's like I'm, I wasn't actually the guy who kind of like made Super 8 films from like 10 years old and mm. kind of did all that. The key is that my father was a documentary filmmaker, so I had this sort of the ephemera of filmmaking was kind of everywhere when yeah. I was growing up. My, my mother loves to tell the story that I, I cut my teeth on film cores. That was, you know, <laughs> they, were my, they were my teething rings. So, but quite up until I was about sort of probably 21, 22, it didn't interest me that much. And in fact, I did the first year of a law degree and oh. kind of that, yeah, and it's like, yeah, I kind of cured myself of that in a year. But, and then essentially <laughs> kind of like went to film college and came out of there and sort of just basically started working. Uh, the college that, that I did go to was quite a very kind of technical in terms of vocational kind of college, as you'd say. It wasn't sort of a film school like film schools mm-hmm. exist now. It was very much kind of like, you know, how to survive on set without, without getting fired is basically what the course was. So, <laughs> what college was it? Uh, it was a college in Sydney, a Sydney, Sydney Film College. It was a very low-key thing, but surprisingly, an awful lot of people in, in the business, especially in Sydney, came through that college. Once I did that, I basically I ended up working um, in documentaries for the probably the first four or five years, um, doing a lot of work in Africa and Asia and South America, going to some pretty remarkable places and seeing some pretty remarkable things. I was in, in this group that basically did fundraising documentaries for aid agencies for like Medicine Sans Frontier or World Vision or Red Cross and things like that. So you'd kind of pack up a bunch of boxes and you'd, you'd end up on like the Libyan Chadian border or the Sudanese border in a refugee camp and and uh, kind of surviving there for a while or you know went into Cambodia after the Khmer Rouge got kicked out by the Vietnamese and you know got shot at a couple of times and got sort of went through some reasonably hairy kind of situations there so it went morphed from that into kind of just doing more sort of commercial work and working on TV shows and features as an AC and uh, actually kind of got caught up in the like a few of us sort of got caught up in that fantastic sort of period in the late 80s of music videos of doing oh yeah you know fantastic work on music videos with with sort of some amazing talent that was like really exciting working on that sort of stuff i mean that's where i first met alex Preuss and 
then he kind of dragged me along and I ended up kind of working on doing short films with him and then we ended up on Dark City doing Dark City which was a fantastic year of my life. It was almost a year because I ended up shooting I operated for Darius on the main unit. I then shot the additional photography, which was another sort of six weeks of principal photography. And then I ended up just stepping on and doing all the visual effects and miniatures and things for that film. So like, oh, I, think really? I, I think I, yeah, I think I worked like 36 weeks in 12 months on that film. So I was wow. in that world for a long time. So. Well, that is a remarkable movie, and I feel like it's a movie that is kind of a secret handshake amongst a, a certain kind of cinephile. Agreed. Um, yeah, yeah, I, agreed. Like, yeah. I saw it in the theater, and it was just like nothing I'd ever seen. And I sort of feel like there was like an aura around Alex Proyas back then. I was a big fan even of The Crow. And I just feel like he was, at that moment, you know, the mid-90s, he was like our premier visual stylist. Nobody was directing like he was. Yeah, it was remarkable working with him because he had such a, a sort of a, I mean, people kind of sort of say, oh yeah, he has a great eye, but there's a lot more to it than that. And when you're working with the guy, it's like, it's quite interesting that in, in that point, you could you could rock up into a, into a setup and it's like, okay, well, this is it. Okay, it's pretty much this, this. Guy walks through the door and we pan from there to there. And then you'll start working the shot with Alex and Alex would go, mm, okay, listen, let's just put, a, that's a 21 grade, let's put a 14 on. And okay, you put the 14 on and then, okay, let's just drop the camera all the way to the floor. Put it right, like, let's get rid of the dolly. Get the dolly out of here, just drop the camera on a sandbag, run a sandbag. And then he looks, you know, he's sort of like working with you there. And he says, listen, just, Dutch it over, just drop the left hand side a little bit and you kind of do it and you look through the viewfinder and you go, oh my god, that's amazing. <laughs> They're like literally out of something which is, you didn't see this amazing shot but he had this ability to kind of like um, spatially to kind of see these amazing sort of shots and he kind of, there's a style to it that, you know, like the German expressionism and blah 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 and all that sort of stuff. But he had this amazing sort of spatial awareness in terms of where to put a camera and, and how to yeah. kind of position it. So big question that I have, though, is like, so you go through a period where you're doing a lot of uh, operating and second unit and stuff. Was it always in your mind that you were going to move into cinematography, that you were going to be the cinematographer? You know, because it's a perfectly uh, lucrative and respectable job to hang back and say, I'm just going to be an operator. I'm, you know, I'm going to do second unit and operating. And there's good money and definitely stability in that. Were you always aiming at cinematography, though? If I ever told you this concept of like these cinematography podcasts are very much like a therapy session for DPs. <laughs> it's like, it's, I ha and this is kind of something you've kind of drawn me into a, a moment that kind of I think is, is kind of always been sitting with me. But, uh, you know, sort of I don't know who you talk to about this, but so here we go. Um, <laughs> there was a moment there that I would have been incredibly happy just doing second units. It's a fabulous place to be. It's a fa on the right films it's a fantastic place to kind of be involved in the whole process. You invariably get to do the really cool stuff. You don't have the same massive kind of responsibilities and pressures that the main unit DP has. And you're normally working with a slightly smaller crew, you can get away with a bit more. Yeah. And you get the consequence, you know, you get to shoot all the really cool stuff. The so coolest stuff. It, and the, but the other side of that for me is that, and I don't know where this comes from, but when I was coming up as an AC, I was in absolute awe of DPs, of these DPs. And I'm talking about when I kind of came through and I was working with, you know, so I got the chance to kind of work with people like John Seal or, or you oh, know, man. Darius when I first saw him and, and Russell Boyd and, and some of these kind of, and even some of the kind of like commercial guys I was working with in Australia who 
I just thought they were just like they were magicians. They were just what they were doing was just like I can't, I can never do that. That's it. that's impossible. That's just how does these people kind of make these images out? Of, especially when we were shooting film, so no one kind of really knew what you were doing. You know, how could they make these amazing images, and how could they do all this fantastic stuff? So, consequently, it, 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 you know, as I say, okay, we're in a therapy session now. It may have held me back a little because I never really thought that I could do it, and it was something that it kind of I don't know. I don't want to sort of be as like an old curmudgeonly kind of guy and sort of say, oh, we don't have that kind of attitude anymore. But I really was in total awe of, of the DP. And mm. whoever it was, and, and you know, yes, I did. I worked with some people who weren't weren't brilliant, but I also worked with people, some people who I just literally, I couldn't, I just couldn't think that I would be able, in any way, be able to approach the same level of work as they did. And uh, it also still gets me a little bit now, even. So it's like it's kind of an interesting sort of attitude. I don't know how many DPs think like this, and it's um, it's, but it's an interesting sort of concept. But it, it was in that time when you had. If, if, if you take John Seal for an example, I mean, it's like you start watching the films. I mean, I remember particularly watching Witness and just just being absolutely floored by his work in Witness, mm-hmm. and uh, and sort of again, sort of going, well, you know, yeah, that's fantastic, but I'm working as the first AC, and how could I ever do something like that? So. Um, so consequently, that sort of goes on, and so like second units and stuff like that, and then moving on to main units and things like that. Uh, and you know, it, some of that goes away, some of it doesn't. Um, you still sort of like, you know, we're sort of an interesting bunch in terms of when we sort of like make that first leap into kind of main unit cinematography and having to be responsible for everything from the the very origin of the the story and being totally responsible for all the visuals and things like that. Mm-hmm. And weirdly, it kind of is a little bit both ways. That since now I've done sort of so much of both now, there's and I've got over sort of the, that sort of complex. And consequently, I think actually probably shooting main units actually a bit easier than shooting second unit, to be quite honest. Because you really get to make well, your, well, you get to make your own decisions. <laughs> I, li- I yeah. like to think of a quote that uh, Todd Hallowell, who shot, who directed second yeah. unit for, uh, and Todd, for yeah. Yeah. oh, okay, yeah, I know Todd yeah. pretty well too. Uh, he had directed second unit for uh, Ron Howard on a bunch of things. He said that mm. on Apollo 13, he had T-shirts made up for the second unit that said, "If it was uh, if it was easy, first unit would have done it." <laughs> yeah, that, that's right. That, that's that's pretty right. It's like I mean, really, as I'm sitting here now, I'm kind of I've got a bunch of camera guys and grips kind of in stage two at, at the studios here in Sydney trying to work out how to get a 45-foot technocrane and a Libra head to kind of match the shot that's in the previous. And uh, they've been working on it for two days now. And that's like, you know, luckily we've got the time to kind of figure it out. But it's uh, it's certainly sort of that. And, I mean, the shot we're talking about, I mean, without saying too much about it, it's going to be in the trailer. So we've got to get it right. And, you know, yeah. we want to make it as cool as we possibly can. And uh, so it is sort of sometimes you kind of do, you do get that. For sure. So what was the moment that, uh, when did you make the transition or was it a gradual transition? I mean, some people we talk to, like, I always think about Charles Pappert, who was a Steadicam operator. One day was like, I'm not doing Steadicam anymore. Sold his rig, never did it again. Was it like that? Or was it like, I'm going to start DPing smaller things and operating on bigger things? Or how, how did that work for you? 
Well, it's, a, it's an interesting. I mean, like you know, as you're saying before, like a lot of films, uh, students are kind of listen to this sort of stuff, and and there's different paths into this world. And it's like the fact that I had done some pretty substantial second units, and and to be quite honest, you know, kind of shooting second unit on the three Matrix movies is a pretty good calling card. And yeah. that kind of, <laughs> in, you know, in the in the Hollywood currency, that was kind of worth. You know, quite a lot. So I, that kind of. Well, as soon as you that, answer this question, we're going to back up and talk about Matrix. But yes, please go sure. on. Sure. <laughs> but, but once you kind of got that Matrix tattoo on the back of your hand, it was like, you know, you kind of got through a lot of doors, and that kind of rolled on from there. So second unit is a way of kind of getting into sort of sort of like main unit gigs and stuff like that. And it's uh, it's not necess- There's no actually necessarily kind of good path to kind of to find your way into this. It's um. The, the fact is it's sort of like you know I think you keep doing good work and eventually people will notice and whether that's in short films or whether that's in TV or, or wherever it is or independent films you know yeah, it'll, it'll kind of work out in the end so let, let's get into the matrix what first brought you to the matrix and when you landed on that project which was obviously shot by the amazing Bill Pope was it obvious when you started working on it that it was going to be as groundbreaking as it was God no God no, it's like that was one of the things that sort of like you can't talk about. It's like, I mean, I got onto it because the, one of the producers, in fact, one of the producers from Dark City, ended up being a producer on The Matrix, and uh, I then was kind of you go through the process, you come in. I met Bill, uh, they were looking for someone to shoot second unit. Bill said, okay, we've, and this, you've just done this film, Dark City, which. I think hadn't been released at that point or was about to be released and in fact the siblings were a little freaked out because there was some sort of you know structural similarities between the matrix and and dark city a little but bit yeah in any yeah in any case that was kind of a known known thing and so I kind of rolled onto that. I think it was the year after Dark City. And we kind of jumped onto that with a second unit director who I'd done a lot of work with in the commercial field. And so we jumped on. I mean, I do actually, you know, visual memories and things like that. I remember walking into the production office and someone said, just flick through that folder. That's the, this is there, the storyboards, and this is what we're doing. And the first look at the storyboards that for The Matrix, if you ever get the chance to sort of have a look at the storyboards from The Matrix, they're a phenomenal piece of work. And contrary to what we were just talking about before with Dark City, the Matrix storyboards just invoke the film totally. The the style of the film and the motion and the composition and everything is is in the storyboards and it's they're quite an extraordinary set of set of drawings and they were done by sort of associates of the Wachowskis and they're all sort of who drew comics for Marvel and and did like Mm. that. So had this amazing sort of real sort of you look like you're reading a, a visual novel. And then you kind of start looking at these storyboards and actually realizing that you're going to have to figure out how to shoot them. So, and that was the biggest thing on the Matrix. Is we again the sort of the second unit thing is we used to have this saying is that you know every seven days we were shooting something that no one had ever done before. And <laughs> it was whether it was kind of the you know, the high the, the bullet time stuff, which was so extraordinary in its own right. Was the bullet time stuff on your unit? Yeah, yeah, we we did. <laughs> Bill has this great sort of saying that, he, like, we talked Bill and I talked about it. That he said after the Matrix got released, and he kept on, you know, getting interviewed about the film, and they people would say, well, "What about this shot? And what about that shot?" And Bill's like, "Well, second unit did that, and well, second unit did that." And it's like, so he's <laughs> very he's a very generous guy, Bill. I, I know that, and it's like it, it was all under his direction, of course, and we we sort of were very close in terms of making sure that what we were doing was in line with what they wanted, but. 
we did all the helicopter stuff, of course. We did a lot of the fight stuff on the first one. We did the bullet time stuff. Which there was a pretty considerable chunk of the film ended up being the second unit's work, which was, you know, which isn't always the case, but it was on that. And, you know, we got those iconic shots like the bullets falling down from the helicopter and... Oh, man. Things like that. And it's like, and again, you know, we're in that world where, you know, visual effects, computer-generated effects hadn't quite caught up with, you know, people's imagination. So we had to kind of work things out like that. A simple shot like that, you know, 300 frames a second underneath the helicopter as the bullets are kind of just raining down on top of you. Uh, there's a whole bunch of stuff in that shot that is a lot of mathematics and a lot of interesting sort of workouts, workarounds and things. We ended up using oversized bullet casings because of the, the real ones that really come out of the minigun just weren't big enough to kind of read as bullet casings as they were falling. Um, you had to figure out how you can shoot a 300 frames a second camera pointing straight up and having, uh, I think, about a 1,000 pounds of, of bullet casings tipped onto the camera and how you can do that without <laughs> destroying the camera and how, how to do it without you know one of those bullet casings falling on top of the lens and not moving and destroying the shot and things like that. And so all that stuff is cool. I mean, the, the thing I'm most proud of, I think, is that in the, the Matrix film is the, um, the lobby explosion, which is after... Uh, Neo and Trinity set off the bomb in the elevator and there's those beautiful mm. shots of the flames kind of doing that wave motion through the lobby which while we were shooting the film no one could really work out how we were going to do those shots and we'd already be kind of been involved pretty much heavily in, in bullet time world with the multiple the 250 stills cameras and and the array and, and the 360 degree green screens and all that sort of stuff, which were which was all fantastic fun to do. I mean, but the the flames in the in the bullet time in the in the lobby was we were going to do it as a an array with like I think 350 stills cameras, and it was just like oh my god, that's just going to be a disaster. We can't do that. It's just impossible. And it was my key grip and one of the visual effects supervisors who basically said, okay, how can we do this? This is just crazy. And so we ended up with this method that we kind of got through all the sort of various sort of permeations of people's interests and empires. And we built a quarter scale lobby out of steel and we suspended it upside down from the studio roof on a 30 or a 20 degree angle. What? And then we built a giant XY dolly with a 300 frames a second camera on it. And then there's just a massive gas cannon at the end, and we literally just tracked with the gas cannon uh, sideways and back, and the whole lobby itself was literally... And so the, the flames kind of just did this amazing, beautiful kind of tumbling through the lobby. And it's... Um, I mean, what you see in the film is pretty much what we saw at Daly's. Wow. And so it was like, you know, it was really remarkable to kind of just sort of... That was, that was really cool because it's such a cool shot, and we kind of got to really sort of from its... Inception. We kind of worked the whole thing out on a procedure that then that then paid off at the end. So, I mean, it sounds like you did many of the very significant shots in the film, you know. And uh, I know that the world has talked about bullet time, you know, to death, but it really was. I think I had read an American cinematographer. Somebody had come up with a technique like that that was used in a rap video or something shortly before The Matrix did it, but they hadn't figured out how to make the in between frames and how to make it look smooth. So it's kind of a choppy effect. Um, yeah, and yeah. when you guys did it, 
I mean, it's it, like you were saying, you were doing something nobody had ever done, every, you know, every whatever three weeks. <laughs> like, wh- what was Less, yeah. what was the feeling of that high wire act of doing that? Because, like, if it didn't work, was there ever like a backup plan for bullet time? Um, no, basically. Um, <laughs> it's it was kind of like that thing of sort of like uh, we did tests in in prep and uh, to kind of like try and achieve this the speed of the the image moving revolving around around actors and things and we tried kind of you know sort of cable driven dollies we always ran into the same issues there in terms of we could we could end up getting like making a dedicated piece of track that kind of would curve a camera and a dolly but the speed that we wanted to go that when you're shooting with film cameras is what would happen is the g-force is acting on the camera would deregister the film in the mechanism and just shred the film. Uh, and that's kind of like, you know, that's the edge of the technology we were working on. So we kind of, we took everything, technically we took everything to the furthest point we could possibly go. And like in, just in terms of like light levels for, like for example, the light levels for the bullet time were extraordinary in terms of the, the, the amount of light you needed. We were kind of, we, we went through on the road of using strobes and things, but in the end it was just good old fashioned, you know, kilowatt power. And my gaffer always loves telling me the story of when we had the bullet time stage running, that we were renting generators from mining companies because there were no generators from film companies that were big enough to, to handle the, the, the power loads. And he would he'd basically walk me out the side of the set, out of the studio, where this massive, you know, 1.2 megawatt generator was, which is like a 40-foot shipping container. And he'd get on the radio and get the board operator to bring up the lights to full, full capacity. And you'd stand there and watch this 40-foot container start shuddering on its, on its <laughs> bed. And then he'd, he'd get, it was like a kid in a candy store. He'd say, look, look, look. And out the top, the exhaust of this generator, there was a one-foot flame coming out of the exhaust of this generator. So, and, you know, so That's we were crazy. pushing the limits of, of the, t- the existing technology. And, and obviously you can imagine the heat that was generated from that, that sort of light as well. It's like we were kind of right on the edge of, you know, setting Keanu Reeves on fire, basically. <laughs> that would just make it more realistic for him. He would just go right into that, I'm sure. Uh, he'd take it. He'd do it. He was, he was fantastic, I've got to say. I mean, unfortunately, it's like, you know, all the stories are true. He's like, you know, he's such a remarkable human being. And, and like, it's, it's very rare that you kind of see someone involved in this business who is that humble and is that human. It's, um, and so, like, I'm very, very happy that for all the success that Keanu's had because it's uh, he's quite remarkable he's been able to maintain himself through this business. Yeah, and in fact, I feel like, uh, you know, he, he almost had kind of a renaissance maybe starting about four or five years ago whenever he started to do those John Wick movies Yeah, and, mm-hmm. and kind of took himself to another level. So, you yeah. know, The Matrix, somewhat well-received, somewhat successful, <laughs> may, hey, maybe the best... Listen, go back to the, that start because you, the original, your original question was, you know, did you think that it was going to be successful? So... The, the story I do have from that is that we went through the whole experience and we kind of, it was probably the hardest film I've ever worked on in terms of the, the pressure and the physicality and things like that. Well, and, and, I do and for what it was doing, of, it was relatively low, it, it wasn't a low budget movie, but for what it was doing, it was working, it was pulling it out of a modest budget for its ambitions. It was, and, yeah. It, and succeeded. Yeah, they, they squeezed every single cent out of it. But it's like I do remember kind of like, you know, however many months later it was like, you know, the cast and crew screening. And I remember standing on the sidewalk before the cast and crew screening 
talking with you know other people who worked on the film and we were literally saying is it going to be any good do you think it's going to be any good and literally that lasted like the first 60 seconds of the film which is like trinity taking out all the cops in the hotel and it was like oh my god this is amazing so it's like but you know right up to that point you really didn't have any idea on what you're working on was going to be any good at all interesting so after you did that and you came back for the two sequels talk about like what the expectations were obviously the budgets went uh somewhat higher and i'm assuming the expectations must have been through the roof as far as what they were trying you know they they were trying to top a movie that had pushed all of the technical and physical and every kind of limits and and kind of created its own kind of storytelling what was it like working on those other two uh, that w- that was a unique experience i mean i was employed for 12 months on two and three uh and the it it was a unique experience in terms of i don't think you know not too many people will kind of work on a a production which literally has that many resources to be quite honest it was like you know you could you could basically call on any piece of equipment or any technique we literally had it sitting in the back of the studio waiting to go um it was it was somewhat it lost some of the charm of the first one because the first one was such a, a rewarding experience in terms of being able to achieve what you did with what you had whereas the second and third one it, it was kind of like we can do anything and we you know we will and uh, they <laughs> obviously were aiming for a much larger world and uh it's um I, I, contrary to some other people i don't mind two and three i kind of quite like them but if you, you have to view them from the sort of, you know, look at the subtext before you look at the, the main plot lines, because there's an awful lot more in the subtext of the films than there is in the sort of the overlying plot lines. Um, so, but it was it was interesting, but it was like, it was massive. It was, I mean, I suppose maybe recently sort of the Infinity Wars and Endgame and things might've been a similar experience um, to those films. But at that mm-hmm. point, it was still, it was still really nice and what was really lovely which i thought was the wachowskis once they had all the success from the first film they could have shot the second and the third film anywhere in the world they could have shot it in antarctica if they wanted to you know they could afford it but they chose to bring most of the filming back to sydney where the original one was done i thought that showed you know an awful lot of respect and loyalty to the to the crew who worked on the first one What's the, uh, in Australia, what's the COVID-19 production situation currently? Listen, we're, we're really quite lucky. Our numbers, societally, our numbers are very low. Um, when we came back, we, we were on this film up until March, then they, then they closed it down, then we came back again in July. Um, oh, really? And we've had, sort of, yeah, yeah. And so we've had a pretty strict kind of protocol. We get temperature checks. Everyone wears a mask all the time. I get COVID tested three times a week. Uh, there's constant sort of awareness, which is being sort of policed by certain guardians on the set and all those sorts of things. So, and, you know, it's actually what up to now. We've been, we've been shooting for quite a while and we're, we're still kind of COVID free. We haven't had one case. That's good uh, to hear. Yeah, it is. It's pleasing. And it's like, every, but, you know, the, the whole thing with this COVID thing is that you know which which this crew particularly has done is like this crew kind of stepped up and said well if we want to work we've got to make sure this is okay so it's fine for kind of governments and and you know locals and studios kind of putting out their protocols and things but 
it's up to the crew to kind of police those. And in fact, this crew has kind of stepped past the protocols that were set out by the government and by Disney and Marvel and actually are really enforcing stricter protocols than were asked for by the studio. So mm-hmm. it's, uh, which is really pleasing to see that, you know, they're all, there's enough initiative from the crew to kind of take that on board and take responsibility for everyone. Thank you so much for making the time, Ross. I know you're in pre-production for a project you're doing right now. Before we go, is there any place people can find your work online if they want to see more of your work or even interact with you on social media? Uh, yeah, the website, the website's fine. It's like rossemeryacs.com. Cool. Well, thank you so much for making the time to come on here. And uh, everybody, please go watch Raised by Wolves on HBO Max. It's really amazing. Yes. Yes, you love it. So that was Ross Emery. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Ross. Uh, Everybody go to HBO Max if you can get it and uh, watch Raised by Wolves. I have to say my only frustration is that I have a Roku TV and I cannot install HBO Max on it yet. I cannot wait for them to figure out this stuff so I can watch Raised by Wolves on my big screen TV because I'm not going to go buy an Apple TV just to watch HBO Max. Sorry, everybody. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, don't don't buy an extra electronic device if you if you don't have to. I mean, a lot of TV sets yeah. come with this stuff built in. No, but, I'm sure yeah. that HBO Max is. I mean, like Peacock was a holdout for a while, and then Peacock came to Roku, and I think HBO Max will be the same thing. It better. <laughs> so Ben, I think it is time for some listener mail. Listener mail. All right. Well, um, this isn't actually mail, but it is a Facebook post from a gentleman that I know named Carlos Berber, who is, I think, a pretty damn good up and coming DP. I think he's in Arizona. Carlos, you can yell at me if you're actually in Nevada or something, but you're you're in one of those states that's kind of near California. Um, I've, I've seen a bunch of his work. His, his cinematography Could be New work Mexico. Is, is, is gorgeous. Could be New Mexico. Uh, Carlos can give me all the shit he wants. Uh, that's fair. Anyway, so he said on Facebook, unprompted by me, by the way, I've been listening to my buddy Ben Rock's podcast where he interviews some of the greatest cinematographers in the business. I've learned some valuable information and it's helped open my way of thinking when I approach a film. To my fellow DPs, I suggest you give the podcast a follow and listen to some of the real world stories from the ones actively doing it. This will not disappoint. You're welcome. (laughs) That's wonderful. I'm so glad to hear that. Carlos actually uh, reached out and said, like, I hope to do work that's good enough that one day you can I can be on your show. And I was like, I'm just going to give you a shout out right now. So uh, I think I actually think Carlos's work is pretty amazing. And there's always a moment when, you know, someone who you who you meet online, as I met him on, I think, either Facebook or Twitter or something. And and they're like, hey, can you watch my thing? And and there's always that moment of like, I don't want to be mean, but I'm also a little scared that I'm going to hate your work. And then you watch and you're like, oh, this is great. (laughs) <laughs> that, that's always wonderful. You know, I, I want to encourage everyone listening, everyone within the sound of my voice to be like Carlos, you know, t- take a moment, put, share it on Facebook, tell people how <laughs> awesome we are. And I thought uh, you meant be like Carlos and be a really good DP, but yeah, sure. No, you, no, can, you, you can also you, market you us. You can also free. market and promote us. That, that, that would really, that would be really wonderful. Uh, you know, cause right now, Carlos ding one point on the board for you. Everyone else listening to the show. Only uh, one point. Okay. Nine points on the board for Carlos. There you go. Okay. So <laughs> he, he made the touchdown and got an extra two point conversion there. I, I 
I mean, I don't know. You got to nine somehow. Anyway, uh, of course, even though that would actually only be eight, but never mind. Well, you know, let's 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 move on. If you're in the sound of my voice, uh, yeah, you know, spread the word. We we love that. It'd be wonderful. We might give you a shout out and tell everyone how awesome your cinematography is if you are a cinematographer, or how awesome you are and, just and for, if we've for seen sharing. Your <laughs> we have to have seen your work first. Well, well you know, we uh, clearly, clearly, you you happen oh, to know this person. You're signing us up for everyone to send us their reels. You know what? It hasn't happened yet. It hasn't happened. So it would be it'll be a problem to have if 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 people start sharing us and then we could look at their reel and we could go, oh, you know what? You totally shouldn't have started off with that shot. I'm gonna give you critique right now on your reel. Don't know why did you why did you why did you use that? Or oh my god, this music is terrible. We're, we're, this is really what's gonna happen. We're gonna get I'm not, super critical. I'm not critiquing your reels if you send them in. <laughs> um so uh, I also have a question I wanted to ask our listeners if anyone has an answer to this. I recently purchased an Apple Watch, mostly for health tracking stuff, because the health <laughs> tracking is pretty amazing on no, it. No, you did it because the cool kids have it. Uh, I have long since abandoned the idea of being one of the cool kids. Cool kids. So, so I am curious, if you're a filmmaker and you have an Apple Watch, what apps you like and what you use specifically in filmmaking? Because I've been looking for filmmaker apps for the Apple Watch, and the only one that I could find is there's a, there's a shot listing app. I think it's just called Shotlister that has a, a watch uh, aspect to it. So you build your shot list on your phone or whatever, and then you can like it'll appear on your Apple Watch. But I'm just curious if people are using their Apple Watches in filmmaking and what apps they they find especially useful. So hit us up. Uh, you know, you can hit me on Twitter at Neptune Salad. Just tell me what you what you like about your Apple Watch for filmmaking. Hmm. Can't help because I'm just going to thoroughly steal whatever your idea is and use it in, <laughs> on my own. So, uh, you know, I, I'm just I'm looking for 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 good advice. And now short ends. All right. Well, Ben, I think it is uh, time for our famed short ends. You got a short end uh, this week. You have an obsession, something. I do have a short end. And so far, we would gotten through the episode without really talking about COVID-19. Damn it. But I uh, as I might have mentioned earlier, I'm I'm editing a project right now. And I can't really talk about what the project is because I've been NDA'd within an inch of my life on it. But I will say that this is the most novel and interesting way I've seen post be run for something. Basically, they have a post house, but none, very few of the editors are going into the actual physical building. Um, I believe it is being run through a place called Hula Post, which is in L.A., and what they did was they to my house they delivered a Mac Pro tower from like 2009 like the we call it the cheese grater one you know it's because it looks like a cheese grater and it's old and someone has loaded Windows on it it's not even running Mac OS and uh, I had to hardwire it into my router my internet router I could not use Wi-Fi because it is controlling a computer at the post house. So there is a there's an edit bay with a computer. I don't know if the monitor is on or not. I have never seen this computer, but basically I am just operating this computer remotely and that computer I assume is a newer more state of the art thing because we're running Adobe Premiere and it's flying. It it, it works as it's as if I have a computer in front of me and there are some projects that would hang up a little bit. And I realized, oh, it's the project that's got like there's probably some media that's that's taxing the processor and the computer or something or they've just stacked too many effects on top of one another. But uh, it, it's a very interesting process. And I, I guess it's made possible through a software bundle from HP that 
like literally I'm able to see it and hear it in real time as if it is my own computer. Like I'm the computer I'm sitting at right now. I have Adobe Premiere on and across the room is this weird setup with the uh, Mac Pro Tower. And you would not know the difference except for that one is running Premiere on Windows and I'm running it on a Mac here. So uh, I, I think it's pretty interesting. Anyway, you were about to say something. I, I was. For any of our listeners who would like to know more about this, it is called Hewitt Packard's Z Central Remote Graphics Service, also known as RGS. And uh, actually, in our April 13, 2020 episode with Jeff Singpeel from uh, Keycode Media, he goes all about this. And there's a couple of links in the show notes of that episode so people can, can learn more. But yes, uh, it's an incredible technology that you can set up to control another computer in a remote location. And it part and parcel feels like you are controlling that computer using almost nothing except a fast, uh, relatively fast internet connection on the other side, which is yeah, what you're and doing. It's, and it's like, I don't have anything special. I just got like regular old spectrum internet. That, that's fast. That's fast internet. Yeah. Yeah. But, um, yeah, I mean, yeah, it, it's all right. But yeah, I mean like the computer I'm operating and I wonder like how low of a computer, how I not low, very but, low, but how, very old, low. how old, how, how important is it? You know, could you set up a Raspberry Pi on this side and, and remote control another computer? My guess is you could. The only problem that I have with the whole setup is I despise Windows, but that's just me. I mean, like, it's not that Windows is fundamentally bad. I just think it's ugly and I hate looking at it, but it works just fine. The one thing that is an odd hiccup in this is a lot of times when you're working on a project, someone will say like, oh, I'm going to email you this file. And in fact, it did happen where somebody emailed me uh, a, a you send it link for a graphics file they wanted me to drop into the project. But if I download it on my end, I can't put it in there. It's like I'm just looking at a window at another computer. Like there's no continuity between the computer I'm operating and what's going on on the edit screen itself. So I had to like go onto uh, uh, whatever it was, Chrome on that computer. I had to like manual, I couldn't just click a link. I had to like retype the whole link, but then I was able to download it. Um, but outside of stuff like that, you know, super easy to operate. And honestly, it was easy as hell to set up. And I, I think part of that is Hula Post has kind of, you know, idiot proofed these to a degree so because they're sending them around. And this project, I believe, has over 20 editors. So they're able to remote manage 20 people from 20 different locations. And you could literally be anywhere in the world as long as you had fast Internet and you could control the edit uh, computer somewhere else. And uh, one other thing before I stop talking about this is one other thing that that it adds to you if you're doing a project and you're using a system like this is if security is important to your project. In other words, you don't want your media getting out. The truth is I have no access to their actual media at all. Hmm. Uh, I'm yeah. editing their media. I'm looking at it. I would have to do something like if, if I was editing a star Wars movie and I had all the media there, I could bring a thumb drive in, stick in the computer and download it. But the only way that I could and, and, you know, that's wrong and probably, you know, would get you fired or violate your contract, but you could probably get away with it with this. There is no conceivable way that I could get any of this media. Not that uh, anyone really would need this media outside of the people who are paying to have it made. You could point your phone at the screen. That's about what you could do. It would be something stupid like that. It would be like, yep. you know, going into a movie theater with a camcorder and saying like, hey, you can watch the Avengers now on my shaky cam, you know, pocket camera footage. Isn't, isn't there a famous episode of uh, Seinfeld where Kramer, that's what he does. He wants to go see Death Blow, but then he ends up becoming a pirate. I think is what it was called. Sounds like Seinfeld. Yeah. Yeah. Can I admit something to our whole audience? 
Oh, you hate Seinfeld. Never seen an episode. Never seen an episode. Never seen a single episode of Seinfeld. Wow. How about Friends? You ever seen an episode of Friends? I've never seen an episode of Friends. Wow. ER. I have maybe seen two episodes of ER. Could we go through the whole nineties? Yeah, yeah. I was gonna say, like, you know, what, family what matters. Was your, what was your What was your television watching? <laughs> family Dude. matters. You were too busy watching Alf. And that was that was ten, ten years ago. X-Files were on the, all those years. <laughs> but X-Files didn't necessarily conflict with X-Files. Seinfeld. The Adventures of Briscoe <laughs> County Jr. There was good television on. I, I didn't need Seinfeld. I'm not saying Seinfeld wasn't good. I'm not saying any of those things weren't good. I just never watched any of them. Uh... <laughs> I'm, I'm just not a big fan of sitcoms. All right. Okay. We're going to move on now. Um, we're going to move on to my short end because you've been talking about uh, remote desktop, remote, you know, it's, it's, Packers, it's real sexy, RGS. man. We're just, yeah. I, I can feel the listeners just <laughs> the leaning listeners, in. They're taking copious notes, hanging <laughs> on your every word. All right. So my short end this week, you're familiar with something called a Google assistant. You, you heard of this thing? I have heard the term, but I don't know exactly what it is. So Google Assistant is like an, you know, smart speaker type of thing. It's like an Alexa. It's like oh, okay. one of those other yeah, one yeah. of those things. Okay. So you're familiar with something called the blacklist. Of course, yeah. Okay, so the blacklist, uh, why, why don't you tell why don't you tell our listeners what the blacklist is for anyone out there? Who, well, the blacklist is like a a list of films uh, of movie scripts rather that are beloved amongst I believe the assistant class in the uh, in in the world of Hollywood, like people who've had to do coverage, there's scripts that are great but often haven't been made and so they're put on this list and sometimes that's where they're discovered, but also you can submit your own script I believe to the blacklist. And uh, if it, if it is beloved enough by whoever, then it gets put on the blacklist and maybe you get discovered. All right. So do you know what the blacklist and the Google Assistant have in common? I, I, I feel it coming, but I don't know. Uh, thanks to a partnership with Google's you know, industry representation, which is actually uh, the United Talent Agency, UTA, uh, they've formed a relationship with the blacklist and now have one of the largest cash prize screenwriting fellowships in the world. Uh, so yeah, I know. I see, I see, I can see your expression via zoom here. Yeah. Uh, you're about as surprised as I was when I heard this, that like, Hey Google, the Google assistant, they're marketing and promoting that with the blacklist teaming up to offer five $20,000 writing fellowships. The, the purpose of which is to have people for six months essentially do nothing but write their feature screenplays or television pilots. And yeah, they're going to be pairing all of the fellowship recipients with a screenwriting mentor. Mm-hmm. So uh, they don't say there's actually any real requirements for submitting to this, except that you can't have, I think, sold something. You can't have made money as a, as a writer before. And they want your writing to be about underrepresented communities. I don't think they're saying that you yourself have to be from an underrepresented community, but I think that what you're writing about must, uh, you know, mm-hmm. in some way do that. But otherwise, it looks pretty damn open. And we'll put a link to it in the show notes. But yeah, Google, I mean, I, I wouldn't have thought that they would have uh, jumped into trying to, uh, you know, cultivate the next. Uh, I know I'm sitting here like, what's Google's game? I don't quite understand why Google's like Google doesn't seem to be Google's priorities have nothing to do with this. Yes, that's uh, that's that's well. I mean, I don't know. Google's looking for ways to promote uh, their Hey Google, uh, Google Assistant. And I guess they want Hollywood to be. Uh, I have a feeling that the person who writes the script about uh, the underrepresented community using the Google Assistant to solve all of their woes, they're getting chosen. The underrepresented group 
about which the script is written is AI because they become oh. intelligent enough. Yeah, because because the AI is very underrepresented in cinema. They, I mean, we've got I mean, really, Ex Machina, we, got, we, we got we Moon, got, we got how many <laughs> other AIs? We, you know, we've got uh, the Matrix. All these movies that you know, AI is not represented. Steven Spielberg's AI. <laughs> very true. Very true. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think that they, I think that they're very underrepresented. I mean, I guess Westworld is all about you know. Did you see Maniac on, on Netflix? I loved that show. And that at its heart is all about an AI. So maybe AI is overrepresented. In I think it's overrepresented. Now. I've Clearly talked myself I just, out I of this. A few. I've just talked. I, I'm not I'm not eligible because I've been paid to write stuff. But um, but I just talked myself out of my own pitch. <laughs> uh, so anyway, yeah. Uh, Blacklist and hey, Google, Google Assistant forming a partnership. Uh, if, if you're a writer or aspiring writer or, you know, thinking about becoming a writer uh here's an opportunity here's an opportunity right now uh and its submissions i think are open until mid-january 2021 and then they're i think they're choosing someone in february and then they expect you to like not work for six months and just write so and they'll give you 20 grand they're not paying you enough money to take off six months (sighs) they're they're paying you equivalent if like you made 40k a year that's what it is because i mean yeah it it depends on where you live and it depends on where you live if if you're uh i don't know when i was uh you know 21 years old if you were like hey here's twenty thousand dollars don't don't work at the movie theater tearing tickets for six months i would have been like you got it you got it no problem sir no problem sir no problem (laughs) anyway so I'll, i'll be right back with that draft of saving private smith okay (laughs) saving private ai Uh, oh no uh all right so ben i think that just about does it who do we have to thank this week uh as always we have to thank alana cody our intrepid producer who's been kicking all the ass and getting us some pretty amazing interviews we have some some awesome stuff banked I, i think she told me that we could almost get through the rest of the year just on what we've already recorded but she continues to push us to continue recording Yes, and she listens to every single one of these, so really I think the only reason she's still doing it is because of these thanks right now. Ah, I'm sorry that you have to listen to that much of my voice, Alana. I don't even think my (laughs) wife hears this much of my voice. Uh, We should also thank uh, our amazing, amazing editor, Ben Katz, who hopefully was doing something to make us sound cheerful on this eve of this long winter's slog of of an election season. (laughs) Yes. I think that uh, Ben's going to have his work cut out for him if he's trying to make his sound cut out. I get it. Sound uh, cheerful uh, because, you know, I realized we didn't introduce ourselves. uh, We didn't say where we can find. Nobody knows who we are. Exactly. At this point. Well, luckily, uh, Adobe Audition has a make cheerful plugin that you can just throw in and it's sort of like in photoshop how you can make someone smile uh audition does the same thing with your voice you just just uh, turn the knob to 11 and just turn the knob uh, and then you're you sound like hey Hey. (laughs) you sound like you're in the morning zoo uh lastly we should thank our uh amazing friend case alatrakshi our multi-talented multi-faceted multi-hyphenate friend who composed and and recorded all the music that you've heard on today's show. Check him out at musicbykays.com. Just uh, send him a message and say you heard his music on here and you like it. And that is it. And we will see you next week after we hopefully know who the next president is and won't be obsessing about it anymore and uh, and whether or not I'm moving to Canada. So uh, (laughs) we'll see you next week at the Cinematography Podcast. This has been the Cinematography Podcast, presented by Hot Rod Cameras. Find your next camera, lens, or accessory on the web at hotrodcameras.com. Don't forget to subscribe to our show on iTunes and connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. 
Thanks for listening.